All right, welcome back to another episode of the Rosetti and Stewart podcast. He's Antonio Rosetti. I'm Justin Stewart. We're coming from you live from Zoom. Not live. This is pre-recorded, but you, get, you catch the drift. Um, Antonio, how you doing today? Oh, I'm doing unbelievable today. Uh, had a good weekend, and then it was a busy weekend, then a pretty chill week. I had uh, two games for ice hockey this weekend for my adult league I'm in. And then this week, I'm just been taking it easy. Uh, yeah. How about you, Justin? I've been pretty good, man. I've been working on that internship with the Allegheny Front, just uh, environmental journalism, that kind of stuff. So we published the first article, and um, yeah, we'll just uh, keep it rolling with the work, I guess, though. So otherwise, uh, thanks for asking. I'm doing pretty well, though. But I wanted to move on our next part of the show. Uh, he's probably one of the biggest guests we've had on our podcast so far. You know him from the NFL and CBS. Also, March Madness. He's going to be the lead play-by-play announcer this upcoming season. Also, you hear him on Nets basketball for yes. Also, does college basketball for the regular season. Uh, he does a whole bunch of stuff. He's pretty busy, as we alluded to early on in our conversation. None other than Ian Eagle. Um, Ian, how you doing today? I'm doing great. I feel like I'm learning a lot about you guys. I'm glad you've had a good week. It's been chill for Antonio. Justin's got some stuff working, so I'm all good. This is actually the the most stress-free time of the year for me. I don't know if, if you can tell via Zoom how relaxed I am, but it's all good. Everything is is cool, and it's great to join you guys. Appreciate it, man. Appreciate it. So I guess we can just jump right into it. My first question to you would be, growing up, was being a play-by-play announcer something you always wanted to do? Yeah, I knew I wanted to do broadcasting from an early age, probably about eight years old. I just didn't know exactly what role. In New York City, uh, Marv Albert was doing the local news. He was the voice of the Knicks. He was the voice of the Rangers. He'd pop up on the weekends doing an NBC sports event, hosting baseball. Obviously, later on, it was NBA. Uh, That really was his springboard into national stardom. But there were other local broadcasters that appealed to me. Warner Wolf was a, a local sportscaster in New York that was on the 6 and 11 o'clock news on Channel 7 in New York, ABC affiliate, then moved over to Channel 2, the CBS affiliate. And his style, his panache definitely caught my attention. On the play-by-play side, Marv Albert, Bob Murphy was the voice of the New York Mets on radio, uh, someone that had a very unique way of doing his job. And uh, I grew up as a National League fan. My father was a Brooklyn Dodger fan back in the day. So adopted the Mets when the Dodgers moved to LA. And I grew up about 10 minutes from Shea Stadium. So all of those things played a part and they were ingredients. I didn't know exactly what I would do, but play-by-play was definitely on my radar, but I didn't have a place to do it. It was not as if I had uh, a high school that had a broadcasting department or had the setup for games. I had none of that. There was no internet. There was no YouTube. There was nothing. You know, you would play on the street with a rock or a can. That was it. I'm old, man. There just wasn't a whole lot going on. No, we we had other ways to, to entertain ourselves. But broadcasting was something that I believed I could do. My parents gave me the confidence that I could do it literally telling me this is what you will do so when you're told that and you're empowered and emboldened to believe it 
it can take you places in this world. But I didn't start really doing it in earnest until I got to Syracuse in the fall of 1986, my freshman year. And then all four years, I committed to polishing my skills, improving, learning as much as I could, observing, taking it all in, and then doing it. You have to do it. You can't talk about doing it. You have to actually go out and get the reps, calling games, doing talk shows, doing updates, doing interviews, going out into the field, going into locker rooms, attending press conferences, and then taking classes as well. So it was working part and parcel in preparing me for whatever the next chapter was going to be. Yeah, I do want to add too. So before like I do, I would love to talk about Syracuse more after this, but 1986, something special happened for the New York Mets. They won the World Series that year. And I do want to ask as a Mets fan, how special of a moment was that, you know, graduating high school and being able to watch, you know, that team win the World Series? That was ecstasy for me at that stage of my life. I grew up a huge baseball fan. Everything was second to baseball. Baseball meant everything to me. And obviously, I love the NFL. I love the NBA. I was into the NHL. Back then, uh, soccer was starting to grow in the United States. I was a New York Cosmos fan. So I loved all sports, but it all stemmed from baseball and my love for the Mets. And the Mets were so poor from my impressionable years. You know, when you're eight, nine, 10 years old, the Yankees were winning championships and I was going into school with my Lee Mazzilli lunchbox and I was getting mocked. Guys, I, I, I can get some stuff out here. I, I, was, I, I was being lampooned at school because the Mets were winning 62, 64 games they were not a credible franchise so to see it turn into what it became in the mid 80s 86 in particular and yeah i was a freshman at syracuse i didn't realize going to syracuse how many people from the boston area would be there you don't know you show up for freshman year again this is before anything that you could research on the internet you just show up and I found out that there were a lot of Massachusetts New Englanders. So you could feel the visceral effect of the Mets and the Red Sox in the World Series at that point. And look, I'm, I'm someone that tells the truth. I'm an honest person. There may have been some underage drinking at that point. So I may not have been a, in complete sound mind. So it amplified the experience in some way back then. I'm not telling anybody to go out there and drink to excess. What I'm saying is the whole experience was celebratory and it was very memorable as a freshman in college, not in your hometown. I was outside of New York City. I was in Syracuse and there were enough Mets fans that, that could share in the zeal, the pure zeal of winning a world championship. Speak and you know, speaking of the Mets too, like Keith Hernandez, the White Gooden. I mean, there were so many good players throughout those Mets teams. Yeah. And uh, do you have like a favorite in, in like in your head, like that you grew up really liking? In that era, once they got good, it was much easier uh, to find highly productive players that were translating their skills into wins. Mookie Wilson was a personal favorite. His smile. 
uh, his comportment, how he carried himself. There just seemed to be a bounce and a smoothness to what he did. But look, in that era, Daryl Strawberry, Dwight Gooden, those were the bell cows of those Mets teams. Keith Hernandez leadership, Gary Carter, the, uh, the, the, the pure fight and competitiveness of Ray Knight and Wally Backman. You could tell Kevin Mitchell had a chance to be a really good hitter. He was very young at that point. The rest of the pitching staff at that point with uh, the likes of Ojeda and Rick Aguilera, uh, Jesse Orozco, Roger McDowell. We can go on and on and on. The, the part of the equation for me, because look, any broadcaster that you talk to, they were a fan first. There was something that connected them to the sports world. And being a fan, that meant you immersed yourself. You learned everything that you could possibly learn about your team or your favorite player or the league that you follow. And even though those Mets teams were hapless, it was such an important time in my life becoming a sports fan that there is a, a special place in my heart for players that didn't necessarily have banner careers, but they meant something to me. Doug Flynn, John Stearns, Bruce Beauclair, that era, Craig Swan, Pat Zachary, Lee Mazzilli, as mentioned, Lenny Randall, later Guillermo Montanez and Richie Hebner, Skip Lockwood, Bob Apodaca, obviously it becomes a Rolodex in many ways because I, I don't want to speak for you guys, but I'm going to presume as sports fans, you catalog a lot of memories based on those experiences. The year stands out to you, what you were doing, who you were hanging out with, what your interests were. And I think that's why often sports fans have incredible recall because they can compartmentalize experiences based on where they were, who they were watching the game with, what emotion they were feeling. And that's part of the reason why sports has completely exploded in our society. Look, with the different streaming services and with all the great content that's out there, you can pick and choose your time of when you wanna watch something, when you wanna consume it, do you want to just spend an entire day, watch all 10 episodes? Do you want to space it out once per week? It's up to you. Sports, it's not up to you. They tell you when the game starts. And if you want to know what happened, you've got to watch. You've got to be there. You can't tape it, watch it later, watch the highlights later. You have to experience it in real time. And we're in a day and age where there are not that many surprises left in our lives. Sports provides the greatest reality show because we have no idea what's going to happen day to day. That's a really good point. That's a really good point. I do want to circle back to the Syracuse days. So you mentioned Syracuse. Um, they, they have probably one of the best broadcasting schools yeah. in the country. There's a lot of guys that have come out that have gone on to do great things. Mike Tirico, Sean McDonough, Bob Costas, just to name a few. Yeah. When you were there, were you able to network with any guys past or prior, or did you even have a chance to encounter guys while you were at college that ended up doing those type of things? Justin, I don't know if you have psychic tendencies in your life, but the three names that you laid out are three names that I did network with. Oh, wow. 
during my time at Syracuse. So let's start with the first name, Mike Tirico. My sophomore year of college, I'm working for one of the campus radio stations. I go to Homer, New York. It's about 18 miles outside of the city of Syracuse to cover a high school football game. And who's on the sideline also covering the game, but Mike Tirico just gotten a job as a local sports anchor. He was still a senior, mind you, in college at the time. But he's the weekend guy at the CBS affiliate WTVH in Syracuse. And I was with a, a friend of mine who was also interested in the broadcasting business. And he leaned over. He said, is that Mike Tariq over there? And we had seen him on TV a little bit. I said, yeah, yeah, I think it is. He says, well, let's go over there. I said, no, 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 let's, let's not bother him. He said, what, are you kidding me? He'd love to meet us. Okay, that was a different mentality. My buddy was from Chicago and a Midwesterner and uh, maybe just had a different way of, of seeing things through a different lens. And by the way, he was right. We go up to Mike Tirico, we introduce ourselves. could not be more welcoming, could not be more affable. He asks us, what are your names? Where are you from? My buddy David explains, I'm from Chicago and a huge Bulls fan, Bears, Cubs, the whole nine yards. How about you? I'm Ian. I'm from Queens. He said, whoa, I'm from Queens. What part? Forest Hills. I'm from Bayside. Okay, so now we get into a whole back and forth based on our background. At the end of the conversation, he says, uh, Great to meet you guys. Would you have any interest in coming by the studio one day? If you want to see the operation, here's my card. Call me. So we call. We become interns for Mike Tirico. David ends up doing some other stuff, and his life leads him in some other directions. I stick with it. So I'm Mike's intern now for the next three years at Syracuse, and I get to know Mike extremely well, not boss intern relationship, friend, legitimate friendship. By the time I get to my senior year, I'm producing his sports casts. He then gets a gig on a local radio station for a Sunday night wrap up radio show. He asks me to produce it. And then when he can't make it, he asks me to host it. Mike gets married up at Syracuse. I'm invited to the wedding. I get married in New Jersey. He's invited to the wedding. So a relationship developed. Mike goes to ESPN and we continue our friendship through the years. And to this day, he's still one of my closest friends, not just in the industry, but in life. Sean McDonough comes to the university, speaks my senior year. And there's about 20 students in the class. And Sean is really witty and engaging and smart. And we strike up a conversation at the end of that session and hit it off. And I get to CBS not that many years later. And the relationship is renewed. And he goes to ESPN and the relationship is maintained through the years. And then Bob Costas. Bob comes to speak my senior year. I would tell you I grew up in a, a family of entertainers. Uh, my dad was a stand-up comedian, actor, musician. My mom was a singer and an actress. So I was never starstruck as a kid. I was around celebrities. I met them. I interacted with them. The first time in my life 
when Bob Costas walked in the room at Syracuse that I felt a little starstruck. And that just showed you my level of admiration for him as a broadcaster. And he's ridiculously eloquent. And he's everything that I was hoping to be as a broadcaster. So same deal. He does his Q&A. And at the end of it, I go up and introduce myself and we hit it off. I end up winning the Bob Costas Award at the end of my senior year, which included a $1,000 check from Bob and his then wife, Randy Costas. And I said to my father, I don't think I'm going to cash this check. I want to keep it. He said, are you a moron? Take a picture. I cash the check. He was right, of course. But at the time, that's how much it meant to me. So to answer your question, yes, on all three, among others. And that was a big part of the Syracuse experience, getting a chance to meet and maybe get to know and create a relationship with former students that have made it in the broadcasting industry. And that continues today. Obviously, I get a lot of people that reach out over the course of the year, not just Syracuse students. I'm open to talking to anybody that's interested in a career. And if I can be of any help in providing insight, background, and advice, um, I'm more than willing to do so because even though I'm an older person now, I do remember what it was like back in the college years and trying to navigate your way through this uh, wacky world, let alone this wacky business. Yeah, I do want to ask too, speaking of like early on, you were with Syracuse's radio uh, network, uh, WAER. Yep. Can, you just, uh, can you just tell us like a little bit about your early stages in broadcasting and just maybe some tips you'd, get, you'd give someone who is just getting into it? I was doing a fairly bad impression of Marv Albert at the time. That was basically my style. He was the one that I was listening to most often, and subconsciously, it was working its way into my attempts at play-by-play. So was I going full-on, yes, probably not, but it was close. It was a facsimile of it. So that was freshman year. Sophomore year, I started to break away and work my own style into it. And then I ended up staying up at Syracuse in between my sophomore and junior year for a summer session. Took some classes, worked at the radio station WAER, and that was probably the most instrumental time in my career where I showed market improvement, consistent repetition of doing the job over and over again. And it was updates and sometimes it was very early in the morning, but I recognized that it's what I needed. I needed to do it again and again and again. So when I showed up for my junior year, I had polished my skills and my confidence had gone up quite a bit. And I could sense from others that they also recognized that my my skill had gotten to a higher level. So junior year, I made a lot of headway. I ended up interning at WFAN Radio in New York in between my junior and senior year, and the radio station was only two years old. So it was still in its early infant stages. And that turned out to be an incredible experience. Fly on the wall, just being around it. I saw things that gave me a leg up 
on the competition. And I use that word competition because that's what it was. There were a lot of students at Syracuse that had an aptitude for broadcasting. They wanted to go to the school because they had an interest in pursuing this field. And what was going to separate each student? Of course, talent, but also knowledge. And pre-internet, where the only way you could get that knowledge was from a book, a magazine, word of mouth, or going and experiencing it. And I got back from my senior year and my confidence level was through the roof that I could do this and I could do it at a high level. And that, that was probably the time that I realized I could do it for a living because you don't know. You think you're pretty good in college. You have no idea how's it going to translate when you play your tape for a program director or a decision maker back then. That was the only way. There was no just sending emails all over the place hoping to get a nibble. You literally had to send out your tape with the hope that somebody would show interest. So by the time I got to my senior year, uh, I, could, I could feel that I had a chance to, to make a living doing this. And I saw my responsibility level go up at the radio station, WAER, and I also saw the respect level of my peers uh, in, improve to a point where uh, this was no longer me hoping or willing it. It was going to happen. It was just a matter of what my, my next chapter and what my next move was going to be. Speaking of that, though, um, I know not too long after, it might have been a few years after, uh, you started working for uh, CBS. Like, can you just talk, talk to me through that process, what you had to do to get the job of being a play-by-play man for the NFL crew, and uh, maybe like some other like roadblocks or things of that nature during that time period as well? Yeah, so just to get you caught up on the timeline, I graduated in 1990. I started WFAN Radio as a producer. And they tell me, look, if you want to be on the air, do not take this job. I had job offers to be on the air in Buffalo and in Morgantown, West Virginia. From New York, I thought to myself, I have a chance to go back home. I have a chance to work for the radio station that I love. And I figured that even though it wasn't the role that, that I coveted, getting my foot in the door was going to be the first step. But again, I'm told very succinctly, don't take the job if you're trying to be on the air. This is not a pathway. I took it anyway. It took about 15, 16 months before they gave me a chance on the air. I didn't pester. I didn't stomp my feet. I didn't annoy anybody. They knew what my interest was. And eventually they gave me an opportunity. And it literally, as cliche as it sounds, it, would, it was someone getting sick. Someone had pneumonia and I got an opportunity on a Sunday night to do updates. And I did well enough that they gave me a chance the next week and the next week and the next week, eventually getting a crack at a talk show. And I was brought on full-time as an on-air personality at WFAN. Fast forward I get the Nets job in 1994, so I was 25 years old. Uh, there's a whole story, backstory behind it, the basic premise. I was very fortunate. The process was very quick, 
And it happened basically within a 10 day period of hearing about the job and getting the job, eventually interviewing with John Spolstra, Eric Spolstra's dad, the head coach of the Miami Heat. He was the president of the Nets at that point in time. I get the TV job the next year in 1995. I get the Jets pre and post game job in 1993 on radio. I get the play by play job in 1997. And now I have TV experience, basketball, radio experience, basketball, and football. And CBS gets the rights in 1998 to the NFL. But prior to that, Nagano Olympics, 1998, Japan. CBS is the broadcast rights holder. All of their announcers are in Japan but they have a college basketball weekend with three games and they need three announcers that are not CBS employees to man those games. And I got a call. It just happened to be all-star weekend in the NBA. So I was free and I called Vanderbilt at Arkansas in February of 1998. And it was a one-off. That's it. One game. That's all we need from you. And there was nothing spectacular or unique or special about the game. Arkansas was a really good team. They were coming off a national championship. And they had Corliss Williamson and Scotty Thurman. And I did the game. Wrapped it up, went home, went back to my business doing the Nets, talked to my agent that Monday. He said, how'd the game go? I said, I thought it went really well. He went, okay, I'll let you know if they say anything calls me back the next day, said, I talked to the executive producer, Terry Ewart. He said, did you like help the crew get out of the parking lot? I said, what? He said, well, his comment was, we really liked the way he handled the traffic. I said, no, 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 I didn't, I didn't help with the traffic. I think he meant the traffic of the game. So that was a pretty good indicator that my agent had no idea what he was doing in regards to television, but that was a different issue. And it was a positive sign. So a few days later, I get a call from CBS asking if I was available for a Georgetown Syracuse game on CBS. I look at my net schedule, I was not available. And I did not have outs in my deal to just be able to bop around and do other games. So I couldn't believe it, but I had to turn it down. And the person I spoke with said, no problem. That's a shame. We'd love to have you, but I'll call you and let you know when we have our seminar for the NCAA tournament. And I said, oh, great. Thanks. I hung up the phone and thought to myself, all right, this person just doesn't know what they're talking about. I call my agent. He's still focused on the traffic thing. And I said, look, can you check with CBS? Do they have me slotted in to do the NCAA tournament? He said, no, 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 I don't think so. Probably a misunderstanding. I'll call you back. I get a call back an hour later. He said, uh, yes, they do. They have you slotted in to do the NCAA tournament. So now I actually had to call my bosses. It was at MSG at that point. They controlled the rights to the Nets games. Uh, it was Sports Channel, which was under the MSG umbrella, Cablevision. And I asked my boss, a gentleman by the name of Mike McCarthy, who is now the head of the Marquee Network in Chicago that has the Cubs and some other rights. And I just leveled with him. It was a human moment. I said, Mike, I know my contract stipulates that I have to do every Nets game. 
this is a pretty big opportunity to do the NCAA tournament. I would miss two Nets games. I'm just asking for your permission to make it happen. And he said, Ian, you're a great employee. You're a great guy. Everybody loves working with you. I'm not going to stand in your way. Do what you got to do. And that was it. I flew out to Sacramento, NCAA tournament. When I'm in Sacramento, USA Today comes to your door at the time. I know, amazing to think that newspapers were delivered to your door. And you'd grab the sports section, which was the red section of USA Today. And Rudy Martsky was the preeminent sports media columnist at the time. And in his column, during the NCAA tournament, huge headline, CBS nabs rights to AFC package from NBC. Right place, right time. I had just done the Jets on radio. CBS liked my work. And I would say within a month or so, I had a deal in place to join CBS to call the NFL. So there were a lot of moving parts. And that was obviously 25 years ago now, which is hard for me to wrap my brain around. But that's exactly how it happened. And uh, that's just one of those fortuitous, lucky breaks that you can't predict. I just happened to be the right guy at the right time with the right network. Yeah. And, and you, did you say 1998 was the first time he called? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So speaking of, so Kentucky won that year. And I'm just like thinking like, do you remember the first game you called? And then also as a whole, what has been like the craziest March Madness game you've called throughout your, uh, throughout your broadcasting? Right. So we're talking about 25 years now, uh, that particular year in 1998, I had in my section, Maryland, Illinois, Illinois State, Utah State, Nickel State, Arizona. Uh, they were the defending national champions, uh, if you might recall, uh, if, if I remember correctly, or they ended up winning it the following year. Whatever it was, Arizona was of championship caliber. And it was a complete cram session. You have no idea. Before, again, early stages of the internet, there's not a whole lot going on information-wise. So you needed the media guide. You needed clips. You needed to talk to the SID. You just needed to gather as much information as possible. My biggest concern that year, Maryland had a guard so I'm looking at the rosters, just looking to prepare. And there was a guard on that Terrapins team. And I said, whew, that's a lot of syllables. And he's not from America. I believe he was from Croatia. And I just didn't want to screw up his name. That was my main goal. So that's the fear that hits you, that I'm going to have to say this guy's name. He was the lead guard for Maryland at the time. And the head coach is Gary Williams. And his name was Sharunas. Yes, Akavichis. So that's the name that kept me up at night. It sounds pretty easy, but when you looked at the name, you really had to analyze it. So I almost tried to approach it as if I was Marv Albert. So Marv did play a role in my early stages of development and then my first attempt 
at trying to do the NCAA tournament. I looked at it as, yes, Akavachis. I just kept reminding myself, yes, Akavachis. And it broke it down for me enough that I could just say, Sharunas, yes, Akavachis, whenever he got the basketball. And he was a really good player, by the way. Games that I've had, uh, I've had crazy ones. Uh, the one that, that really stands out to me was in Cleveland, Ohio. It was wrapping up the opening weekend of the tournament. Chris Paul in his sophomore year, they're a two seed. They have a legitimate chance to win a national championship. They're good enough to win it. And they get into a battle with West Virginia. And it was really a memorable game with Kevin Pitznagel and Mike Ganzi making shot after shot after shot. Chris Paul fouls out in the game, a helpless feeling. You're on the sideline. You can't help your teammates. And West Virginia, with John Beeline as their head coach, advanced to the Sweet 16. That one stands out. Look, I called uh, the, the Duke Butler National Championship game on the world feed where Gordon Hayward had a chance to win it with a half-court heave that nearly went down. To me, if that shot goes in, it might be the greatest ending in sports history. For Butler to win a championship in their home city against Duke on a half-court shot would have been the stuff that dreams are made of. And it was that close. And I had a chance to call that game on, on the world. And I've had just great runs, St. Peter's last year, upsetting the likes of Kentucky and Murray State and Purdue, and then uh, running into a buzzsaw in North Carolina and the Elite Eight in Philadelphia. But that run was was pretty special. There have been so many. Uh, I would never want to try to narrow it down to one or two. Each year produces a pretty special moment in the NCAA tournament because it's set up for it. You do have these David Goliath stories. You have favorite underdog that develops over the course of the tournament and you walk into these arenas and there's a swing vote there are fans that have no rooting interest they're just there to have a fun time but they pick a favorite they seem to like a certain team or a storyline or an upset and it just picks up so much inertia over the course of the day that you can feel it it's tangible in these arenas so it's a really cool experience and uh, i think it it makes it uh, pretty special every year because names you've never heard of capture your imagination during the month of march that's cool that's cool i do want to take a slight detour we can go back to the march madness conversation but i want to quiz you a little bit so there's four nfl games that have some significance in like past 30 years that i, I just want to see if you remember like the date or not the date, but the game, the teams are playing, and the significance behind the game. So my first one is uh, September 16th, 1998. What do you remember about that day? <laughs> Man, I remember checking into my hotel in Indianapolis and thinking to myself, I got to pinch my skin to make sure that this is real, that this is happening. As I prepare for Indianapolis and Miami, my first game for CBS, Peyton Manning is a rookie. I have no idea what I'm walking into. I've never been in a production meeting before in my life where you meet with the head coach, Jim Mora. You meet with the players, in this case, Peyton Manning. So the first production meeting that I have in my career is with Peyton Manning. 
He's the first player I've ever met with in that setting. I don't know what to expect. I have no sense of who he is other than watching some interviews here and there and how he carries himself. And he walks into the room and I stand up. I said, hey, Peyton, how you doing? He goes, hey, Ian. So he knows my name. That shows you something. He's already done his research. We sit down. He dazzles me in our 15 minutes. This guy is so prepared, so smart, so polished. And I walk away thinking, well, this is what it's like to be in the NFL. Little do I know at that point is this guy is a one of a kind. And I do this job another 24 years and I just haven't met a whole lot of people like him. There are some, but not a lot. So going into that game, I, I thought to myself, if Peyton Manning turns out to be the player that we think he can be, people are going to look back. They're going to want to see the first game. And he didn't play particularly well in that game. Dan Marino and the Dolphins carved up the Colts. Manning threw a bunch of picks. We had a shot late in the game of Archie Manning with its hands over his head in despair. And I'm telling you, because of that, Archie did not put himself in a position from that point on to be caught by cameras. He would hide in stadiums because in game one, I think he realized, oh boy, I'm going to be part of the story no matter what. I played in the NFL and people are going to look for my reaction. And Archie, great guy, competitor. So I'm sure was eating away at him, his kid in his first NFL game. And uh, they still had a chance down the stretch. They had one last drive that could have kept them in the game, but uh, Peyton got picked off. So uh, I just felt a a lot of pride in uh, getting to that level of my career and handling my business the right way. And I'm proud to this day. If you put the tape on, uh, I, I thought I handled it well. For my first game, what turned out to be Peyton Manning's first game, it was Um, me and Mark May call on the game for for CBS. We worked together three years and I enjoyed my time with Mark. He went on to ESPN and did his shtick with Lou Holtz and uh, the whole nine yards. But yes, if I remember correctly, that is the game you're alluding to. You are correct. You are correct. Now, the second game happened also in September, but a few years later, it was September 8th, 2002. Do you remember anything about that day in particular? September 8th, 2002. I'm working with Solomon Wilcots at that point, but I might have been filling in for Dick Enberg. Was that Kansas City, Cleveland? Yes, it was. With Dan Deerdorf? Yes, it was. Unbelievable game. Trent Green and the Chiefs somehow got the win on a Morton Anderson field goal. Dwayne Rudd ripped off his helmet. Nope. As the clock was still running and the play was still running because John Tate, a big defensive lineman, got the ball on a fling from Trent Green. Rudd thought he sacked the quarterback, ripped his helmet off in what he presumed was a season-opening victory for the Browns, and it turns into a loss. And what amazed me in that game, I'm filling in for a legendary figure, Dick Enberg. I'm working with Dan Deerdorf. I was blown away by Dan's talent. Uh, I thought Dan was among the best football analysts to ever do the job. 
he was so on top of that ending. If you watch back that highlight, it amazes me to this day. He saw it in real time, not a replay. In real time, he knew exactly what took place. And the pro that he is, he waited for me to finish my call, and then he jumped in to get the audience up to speed. Wild game among the craziest endings I had ever seen at that point. And now, here we are, 21 years later, still as as nutty a finish as you're going to find. So I do have two more games, but I, I want to open, like, I want to give the chance for uh, Tony to ask any more questions. If you got any more, Tony? Yeah, there's there's one in particular. So you mentioned Mark May. He played football for Pitt. Yep. And then you also mentioned Dan Marino, also at Pitt. And you mentioned Pitt Snoggle, too, from West Virginia, one of Pitt's rivals, and how when they played Wake Forest and Chris Paul. So I, I do want to ask, though, there's all this Pitt we're talking about. We're from Pittsburgh. Uh, do you have any, like, memories of, like, calling a game maybe in Pittsburgh when you were with <laughs> CBS? And, uh, it, or, like, just maybe a team you covered, like maybe the Steelers? Yeah. Or, like, do you have any, like, key memories about that? I have a lot of them. Uh, I obviously broke in at a time where Bill Cower was the head coach and Cordell Stewart was getting his opportunity slash as a quarterback. And then the transition was made to Ben Roethlisberger. I think if not me, maybe Jim Nance, but I'm right up there with the amount of games that a play-by-play announcer called of Ben Roethlisberger's. I just did a lot of Steeler games over the years. Great comebacks, gutty performances. I don't know, Justin, if this is going to slip into your territory with the other games, but I had a game where Antonio Brown kicked the punter. It's (laughs) one of the all-time most insane highlights. He kicks Spencer Lanning in the face. And I think to this day, people still crack up over the call because I – I worked in the call just as part of the cadence. Like, here's Brown right up the middle. He kicks a man. Like, I, and I kept going. Like, it, it wasn't as if I stopped the rhythm of the call. And Antonio obviously was a ridiculous talent. And I had a lot of big calls with Antonio Brown. Also, a personal favorite is Mike Tomlin. I just love talking to the guy. I love our production meetings. He is honest he is clever he is a wordsmith Uh, he's the whole package and i've said this before i'll make the point again if he ever decided he wanted to do television he would be a superstar if he was on a pregame show i'm not sure you would find much better that's how gifted he is as a speaker as a motivator as a communicator as a football mind so a lot of good feelings with the Pittsburgh Steelers. I've done so many games there between TV and radio. And I just love, I love the vibe. I always have. There's something when you walk into their facility, the history, uh, Mr. Rooney, the current Mr. Rooney, his dad, they're just classy, first-rate people. And... That makes a difference. There's there's something to that when you feel a connection in in that way. 
Fair enough. Now, another Steelers game that wasn't on my list, actually, that you called in Pittsburgh was actually, I believe it was 2014. It was Dolphins and Steelers. And it's partly memorable for the last, like, 10 seconds of the game. So, (laughs) Antonio Brown almost pulls off, like, a crazy um, walk-off touchdown. Can you just kind of talk to me through that play, like, through your eyes, like, what you were seeing, how the play was, like, developing, and, like, how he almost pulled off, like, one of the craziest touchdowns of all time? So we just gave a lot of credit to Dan Deardorff for how he handled the end of the Cleveland-Miami game. Give equal kudos to Dan Fouts, how he handled the end of Miami and Pittsburgh. Inclement weather, unlikely comeback, you know, a wild ending, which later Dan and I experienced in the Miami Miracle with Ryan Tannehill. That was very close, inches away from being one of the greatest finishes in NFL history. I think as a play-by-play announcer, you want to document the moment and you want to be real. And I've always looked at it as uh, being authentic in what you're processing and then what you're providing to the viewer. On television, they've got the picture. So your job is to enhance it to compliment it, not to take over the moment, allow the moment to happen. And if you can pick out the most important parts of the moment, I think those that find that balance are the ones that have success as a television play-by-play announcer. Radio, same concept, except now you're in full description mode and you're painting on a blank canvas. And at the end of it, you hope that the listener has a visual of what just happened. TV, they have the visual. What can you do to help make the moment feel big? And as a play-by-play announcer, you're, you're building towards something. And what I was most proud of looking back on that, you know, that's one of those plays we've seen a thousand times in the NFL where it doesn't work out and the ball bounces in a bizarre way and an offensive lineman jumps on it and tries to toss it and now it's chaos this one was really close to being a touchdown and again listen to it Dan Fouts waited until I was finished and said Ian he stepped out of bounds and he had the yard line and that was it and he was right but I did call the play through And I find that to be important. We see so often now in the NFL, NBA, college basketball, announcers will couch because they know there's going to be a review of some sort. And the call will be affected forever. You don't get to do it again. You get one shot on play-by-play. So I've tried to make a real conscious effort to call the play through and then provide whatever details are necessary after the call. That would qualify as one of those examples. Fair enough. And you actually mentioned that was the Miami Miracle. That was one of the dates I had. So I'll just skip that, though. But the last one I had, this was actually more recent. Um, This was November 15th, 2020. What do you remember about that day? (sighs) November 15th, 2020. So we're talking about the pandemic season. 
Charles Davis and I were working with a glass partition between us for the entire year. We were not allowed to eat meals together. We were not allowed to travel to the stadium together. Everybody had to be in separate cars because of COVID and because of the constant testing. Boy, where would we have been at that point? Oh, okay. Kyler Murray. Yes, sir. Arizona, Buffalo, Arizona. No real fan participation. I think they had 2,500 or 4,500 fans in attendance. Let me give you some more background. Bills get the touchdown. You think Allen to Diggs is going to be it. That's it. The Bills are rolling. If you remember at that point, they were the best team in the NFL. They were right. rolling through the competition. Arizona gets the ball back. We lose communication with the truck. So now we're on our own. And our situation was affected because members of our crew had tested positive for COVID. So our producer didn't test positive, but he was in a car with someone that did test positive. So he was not allowed to produce the game. He had to quarantine in the room in Glendale. So we had a producer step in from New York in our ear remotely. The director was on site. Our communication goes down and we're flying with no pilot at that point. And Charles Davis and I, I'm just looking at him saying, hey, we're good. We'll just keep doing our thing, follow along, whatever replay they're putting up. And yes, that turned out to be a wild ending with Kyler Murray, video game-like, keeping the play alive. And I can tell you from an announcer perspective, when you make a final call, you're trying to balance your voice with the crowd. And in an NFL game like that, there's an eruption. So you're trying to find the right level where you will cut through, but the crowd still is a part of it, and it's the blend. Well, guess what we were doing? Fake crowd noise. That's it. There was a loop that our audio guy had, every game had, and they would use it, and they would pot it up. And I'm now doing this game with fake crowd noise and one of the most incredible endings I had ever seen in my life. Great throw. Great catch, great win, but my memory will be dominated by the fact that we had no communication with our truck, and you basically had friends and family in attendance for the game, so you didn't have that spirit. It was eerie in many ways in how that game ended and what it would have been like if you actually had a full stadium. Yeah, and now I do want to like kind of step into a time machine. I know I'm kind of changing gears, but I do want to go back to Syracuse in one year, 1987. And uh, I only, I, I'm a huge fan of this game called Sporkle. And Syracuse racked up a ton of wins that year. And when I'm looking at trivia, 1987, yeah. Dick McPherson really turned that program around. Can you tell me a little bit about the 1987 year and uh, how special that may have been for you? Syracuse was a football school, but not at that point. They had a great run of running backs with 
Jim Brown and Ernie Davis, among others, and guys that had a lot of success in the NFL, but they didn't sustain it over time. Dick McPherson, just a beautiful human being, uh, as approachable as you could ever hope for, for a student, for someone of his stature to accept you as part of the media and answer your questions and treat you with a serious tone of, this is a reporter, I respect you, I will answer your questions. But he almost had that, that vibe of a teacher or an uncle, someone that you looked up to in, in that manner. I don't know if anyone thought this guy could lead Syracuse to a national championship. That year, they were right on the cusp of winning a national championship. They tied with Auburn in the Sugar Bowl. Pat Dye uh, very famously elected to go for the tie, not for the win. And Syracuse did not have the undefeated season. They were unbeaten, uh, but they were not undefeated. They went 10-0-1, if, if I remember correctly, or 11-0-1, whatever it ended up being. Don McPherson played like a Heisman Trophy winner. Tim Brown won it for Notre Dame. And a lot of it, I still think to this day, was the fact that Notre Dame was on national TV. And Tim Brown, basically at the midway point, had won the Heisman Trophy, had done the Heisman Trophy pose on a touchdown. And it was a brilliant receiver and was a Hall of Famer as an NFL player. But Don McPherson was right there with him that year. Daryl Moose Johnston on that team. Uh, they just had a bunch of really good players that came together at the right time. And it was a joy. It was a joy to follow them and cover them. And it was a good run for Syracuse at that point. They had another quarterback, Todd Philcox, after McPherson, who ended up being a pro and, and played in the NFL. So they had just a nice run of talent. They were recruiting New York State, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, Massachusetts. Uh, they had a good run in the Northeast, but maintaining it was the tough part. And uh, ultimately, as we know, there have been some ups and downs, but that team was incredibly likable and highly productive. Yeah, and I do have another question too. Um, so obviously City Field, that's the new home of the Mets for about 10 years now. Yep. But, you know, think about Shea Stadium from the very beginning all the way until the later days with Jose Reyes, Beltran, you know, uh, you know, David Wright as well, all these players. What is your, like, favorite memory of Shea Stadium and, like, what's your, like, first memory of, like, walking through there in Queens, New York? First game I attended was 1976. Again, these were not big-time Mets teams. It was a transition from a team that got to the World Series in 1973, lost to the Oakland A's, and then they stripped it down. They basically sold it off for parts. And they traded Tom Seaver then in 1977. He was the lone remaining link to the championship team of 1969. He was a future Hall of Famer. He loved playing in New York. New York loved him. But at that point now, there was an acknowledgement that the Mets weren't looking to win. They were going on the cheap. They were trying to get young players. They were trying to start over. And it took a long time for them to get back to a level of credibility. So those were lean years. I would go to a bunch of Mets games every year. But it was me and about 9,000 other people 
they just were not drawing because they weren't winning. I would go to old timers day. So at least you would get a, a, a feel for what it was like, you know, Jerry Grody was there and Jerry Kuzman was there and John Matlack was there. Now, these were guys that that I looked up to because they were the ones that that were winning players for the franchise. When it started to turn and you saw the seeds planted of what the next iteration was going to look like, it changed. Shea was electrified and it was loud and it was almost a release for Mets fans because they were second-class citizens in New York. They finally had something to feel good about again. And I got swept up in it. So even though those teams weren't very good, I enjoyed going to the games. Uh, my dad had done a promotion for them in 1978. So I got to attend the game with him, go to the locker room, meet Joe Torre, meet Lenny Randall, Lee, meet Lee Mazzilli. Lenny Randall gave me a bat that I still have somewhere in my basement now because it meant that much to me at the time. Lee Mazzilli gave me a batting helmet. I got autographs from all the players. Again, they didn't have a whole lot of fans back then. I think they were excited. Similar to Mike Tirico, excited to meet me at the time. I think the Mets were excited that there was a fan that was actually interested in them <laughs> and a kid that uh, uh, that looked up to them. So that that time was very special for me, and and uh, I look back on it today. That was truly the beginning of a lifelong love affair with sports and what it can do in your life and how it can change you and give you hope and allow you to feel the whole rainbow of emotions because it's not always going to be your team winning the championship. There's a lot of humility that comes along with being a, a true blue sports fan. I said, it's a really interesting perspective, but I do want to get back to like your broadcasting side. So like, obviously you're, you're off right now that it's this time of your summer, but once you start getting in the swing swing of things, you talk about like your your next job and the yep. conflict they have with March Madness. So obviously you'll do preseason with the Jets, and you got the NFL season. Yep. Next, you know you'll be doing basketball for the Nets. And you got M NFL playoffs, and you got college basketball thrown in there, and then you do NBA work too, and then you got playoffs. Like, do you how do you balance all that without like feeling overwhelmed? And do you like, do you, like keep a schedule like on your phone or something just to, like? stay up to date like with like things like because i know you're covering a bunch of teams like how do you like stay prepared and on top of your game when you're covering not only like a different sports but like different teams and players i only feel overwhelmed when someone mentions it like you just did in that Sorry. manner <laughs> no 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 <laughs> it's all good but that's when it hits me like yeah how do i do that exactly and i've been doing it now for a long time the juggle has been real for me since the late 90s. So we're talking about 20 plus years of a jigsaw puzzle. And that's how I look at it. I'll give you a, a couple of my secrets to, to make it manageable, compartmentalizing, being able to do your work and move on to the next thing and feeling good about it, not feeling as if you left work on the table or gave too much time to one and not enough to another. That's 
regimented, routine-based. That's years and years of doing. That's realizing what I need to know and what I don't need to know until game day or the stuff that I used to really spend a lot of time on that I realized wasn't making air. Now I don't spend as much time on and I use that time more efficiently and effectively doing something that I think actually will make air. Number two, don't let them bleed into one another. If I have a Westwood one game, I don't show up to my Nets game the next day complaining about my flight that I was trying to get home from Detroit. I don't take my issues with any challenges on the net side and bring them to my CBS assignment. I don't take whatever problems there might be at CBS and then transfer them over to my Turner assignment. And every crew that I work with, I realize and respect that that's their most important game. So for me to not put in the necessary time to spend an inordinate amount of time talking about some other event, that's disrespectful to the producer on the Nets or the producer of the Turner game or the producer of the Westwood game or the producer of the CBS game. That crew is locked in on their game. So in turn, I'm locked in on that game. And then the other part too, which I've just tried to subscribe to this theory from day one, every game's important. Doesn't matter how many viewers there are, doesn't matter if the standings indicate that it's not important, somebody is watching the game and it's important to them. And then the other part is that someone's watching the game and they're forming an opinion on me. They don't know my work. I can't lean on a game that I did back in 2002 or 2012 or 2020. That game is important. That broadcast is important. They're forming an opinion on me as a broadcaster based on that performance, not the Kyler Murray play, not the Miami miracle, not the Dwayne Rudd rip off his helmet, not Antonio Brown kicking a man in his face. They're forming an opinion on that game and that game alone. So when I constantly remind myself of that, it keeps you on your toes and you never rest on your laurels because you're locked in on the job that's in front of you that day. And you're not thinking about the four games you have the next week. You deal with that when it's time to do, and you better get ahead. Let me leave you with that last thought. Do not procrastinate. You've got to be ahead of the game. And that often means NBA, I'm two weeks ahead of the curve so that when the game comes, I've already done most of my work. And now I just have to do a bit of the housekeeping to make sure that I'm good to go for that night. You have a question? Okay, you did. Oh, yeah, yeah. And I do want to ask, too, um, I was doing some research, research, and I saw that um, your father was a comedian, actor, and played trumpet as well in a big band when that yeah. was those were getting big, too. And I just want to ask, like, how was it, you know, growing up with him being in, you know, the spotlight? And I also just want to ask as a whole, how, how like, supportive were your parents of, like, everything, and how much did they mean to you? Yeah, my... Dad was my hero in how he carried himself, how he treated people, how he made people feel welcome, how he diffused what could be uncomfortable or awkward situations based on his personality, based on his humor, and based on his humanity. So forget about the career stuff. On a personal level, I was a witness to it every day I was around him. 
his kindness and his ability to make someone feel good about themselves. And that meant a lot and it resonated uh, at a high level for me. Career-wise, he was an exceptionally hard worker. He traveled the country at, at his height, uh, 245, 250 days a year. And he realized that his reputation was what mattered most. That needed to be splendid and golden. And if he took on a job, that means that he gave everything he had to that job, whether it was in stand-up comedy, whether it was as a commercial actor, he was in 50 different commercials over the course of his career. There was a stretch, probably a four-year stretch. Every commercial he went up for, he got. We always see that where actors keep popping up on commercials. Oh, I saw that guy here. I saw that. He was that guy from 1978 to 1982. It was an automatic. If he walked in the room, he was getting the spot. Uh, and that, that was uh, highly motivating and encouraging. And they were so supportive. My mom was also in entertainment. They both believed in me. Uh, they both would fill me with confidence. And then it created a little bit of, of blind confidence that I had where, you know, you're a little naive, but it was effective. I. I thought I could do this because they said I could. And sometimes it's as simple as that. When you're injected with that level of conviction that you're going to make something of this and make something of yourself, that goes a long way. That's a, that's a really, um, that's really good points you made there. I do like want to shift back. I know we're going like bouncing over the place here. But I want to shift back to football. So 2018, um, the first two games you did that year, so just a little backstory, 2017, Patrick Mahomes makes his first NFL, NFL start, gets a W in Denver. You flash forward to the 2018 season. I mean, the first two games that year, those are as two games as well as you can ever play. You're just talking about what it was like watching him just, like, take the NFL, like, by storm, like especially that season and, like, you know, what he's done ever since. Remember walking into the production meeting – it was Kansas City at the Chargers to open up the year. And Mahomes had made one start, as you mentioned. He filled in for Alex Smith. They gave him a rest in preparation for the playoffs. And he was good in that start. And there was a pretty clear indication that this guy has a chance to be pretty special. But it was one game. So now, here we go. It's his show. And I didn't know him. At that point, I've done the NFL for quite a long time. I've been in production meetings with Peyton Manning and Tom Brady and Aaron Rodgers and Drew Brees and on and on and on. And he walks in and he was so comfortable and he was so confident, but not cocky, confident. And I walked out of there thinking, man, this guy's got a chance to be pretty special, but who knows? You got to prove it on the field. Dan Fouts was very high on him and I respected Dan's opinion. Well, that game, he outduels Phillip Rivers. And then who was the next game against Justin in week two? Uh, the Steelers. Steelers. Was that the one where he just went off? I think touchdown had, after touchdown. Like after six touchdown passes. Yeah. 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 Uh, so I had a couple of calls in that game and, and you could easily dial it up on YouTube. 
where you could hear in my voice how astounded I was at what this man was doing. And it was telling because he keeps doing it. But I, I believe I said something in that game about you get a touchdown, you get a touchdown, you get a touchdown. It just was happening over and over and over again. There was a, a famous Oprah clip of her as a talk show host, which she did very well for many years, where she was giving away cars to everybody in the audience. You get a car, you get a car. you And that just kept hitting me in the moment that Patrick Mahomes was spreading it around to everybody. You get one, you get one, you get one. And those are real honest reactions in the moment. And my hope is, as a play-by-play announcer, that the audience is feeling that with you. Uh, that's, that's the essence of the job. If you can cut through everything and now the audience feels a real connection because they can relate to what you're saying because they're feeling it too. And uh, it was an amazing display and it's, it's still incredible what, what this guy does on a weekly basis. Yeah, I have one more question for yep. you. My dad is a diehard Pitt fan and remembers when they won back in 76. Now, I know Mark May wasn't on that team, but I, I kind of have to ask it because Mark May was one of my – and Dan Marino were two of my dad's yep. favorite players. How was it – how is it, like, working or with Mark May and, like, just how was it? I mean, first of all, we were like an odd couple because he's six foot five and I'm five foot six. So right out of the gate, the physical difference between the two of us was alarming. But TV can be a magical place where you balance it out, you sit on high chairs, you shoot it in a certain way, and it somehow seems to work. Mark had done some work for Turner prior on their Sunday night package. They had an eight-game package. It was Vern Lundquist, one of my favorite broadcasters and people of all time, Pat Hayden, and Mark May. Turner loses the rights. CBS gets the rights. They hire Mark. I'd never met him before in my life. They send us to Jacksonville for a rehearsal game, Dallas at Jacksonville. Not on the air, just the two of us in a booth, a producer in our ear, and we're going to go through the motions of what it's going to feel like when we do it for real. So Mark says, well, let's go on the field prior to the game. Yeah, sure, why not? So we go on the field, and who walks by but Jerry Jones. And he stops to say hello to Mark. He said, Mark, great to see you, Mark, great to see you. He said, well, I want you to meet my new partner, Ian Eagle. And I extend my hand, and Cherry says, okay, Iron? I said, well, no, it's actually Ian. Ian Eagle, he goes, Iron. I said, well, no, it's uh, Ian. He says, Iron? I said, yep, let's just go with that, Iron. Iron Eagle. So Mark May's cracking up, obviously, the entire time. He's just laughing, dying laughing. Jerry keeps going, and we go up, and it set a tone for us of, hey, we're going to have fun. We're going to have a good time. And Mark and I were very friendly over that three-year period. 
It worked. It was easy. We got one another. He knew that I was a good teammate. I was going to set him up. And I really enjoyed our time together. That was a lot of dinners and a lot of time spent in cars together. He got a great offer from ESPN and he took it. But, you know, I thought Mark and I would work together for 10 years. But you realize in this business, that's not normally how it works. But it was, it was a great time. You can tell your dad that, that Mark's a good dude and uh, really enjoyed our time together. Great offensive lineman, obviously, Super Bowl champion with uh, the Washington football team, not the commanders. They were something else at the time. Uh, but, yeah, good good guy. Good, good guy to deal with and, and enjoyed my time with him. I appreciate that, I, and I will let him know. And he'll he was, he watches our podcast too. So nice, <laughs> thank you. Yeah, that's all for me. That Justin, do you have any more? Yeah, I actually have one more question. So this is a bit of a loaded question. So don't feel the need to answer this. So looking ahead to this upcoming NFL season, so like obviously the biggest talk this offseason has been about. Oh, look at all the the young and talented quarterbacks in the AFC. I mean, you can make it a case for every team just about in the AFC that has like a quarterback they feel comfortable with like long-term. And the second part of that, well, first of all, like what is like, what is your take on the AFC as a whole? And then the second part of that question, I have to make it a local guy since we're Pittsburgh guys with the Steelers. Um, what do you think is the outlook for the Steelers this year, especially with year two of Kenny Pickett? Yep. Well, let's take the second part first. Obviously they need to see development. They like his moxie. Uh, there's, certainly enough evidence to show that the guys like playing with him and they believe in him. And the question once again becomes the offense. Can they tailor some things for him? And do they have enough explosive players? I think they do to take a leap offensively for consistency. We saw some big plays. Uh, that, that was obvious to me once he got a chance to get in there and process everything and get comfortable. I just believe in Tomlin as a coach. As we know, the guy never finishes under 500. It comes down to whether or not Kenny's ready to take a big step forward in year two. If he is, uh, you're looking at a team that, that might be a factor. If he's not, then there are other teams that are just better equipped to, to get on that playoff run and play meaningful games in December. But I would never count out the Steelers. He always finds a way. I think he's just got an incredible knack for pushing the right buttons and uh, finding the best in individual players. As far as the first question in the AFC as a whole and quarterback play, look, when you have Aaron Rodgers now join the AFC, and a motivated Aaron Rodgers after how things ended in Green Bay, there's no doubt that it's going to be one of the most intriguing storylines. Is the offensive line improved? Are they good enough to protect him? Because if they're not, that's going to be a huge issue, keeping him upright, keeping him healthy. I would presume that the Jets are going to feed off some of that momentum that they've gotten during this offseason. They have a young core, and we saw it during different parts of last year. That young core is ready to shed the label of same old Jets. You got to go do it in the NFL. Buffalo, a team that I've been waiting, waiting, waiting to get to that point where they break through. 
and get to the Super Bowl and win a Super Bowl. Cincinnati, how can you not love Joe Burrow and what he brings to the table? Guy is cool as a cucumber and shows no signs of feeling stress and pressure in the moment. The Chargers, the way that season ended against Jacksonville, that's a talented team. They've got a big-time quarterback. At some point, do the pieces fall into place, and does Herbert get a chance to do it on a big, big stage? These are all legitimate questions. Denver, with the coaching change, can he get enough out of Russell Wilson? Can he get Wilson back to a point where he's effective and productive on a weekly basis? I just think the AFC is littered with with storylines and um, I'm excited for it. I don't have my schedule yet, but I'm looking through it and, and I have a sense of where we might end up along the way in the first few weeks. Well, um, that's pretty much all I had for you. Um, tell me, do you have any more questions? The only thing I have left to say is thank you so much again for coming on. Like This has been a blast and we really right. appreciate it. I, I really appreciate it too. My now pleasure, I, guys. Awesome. Thank you. That sounded incredible too, that by the way. Top tier. <laughs> top tier. <laughs> No, but um, guys, that was our podcast with Iron Eagle. You can see him on TV pretty much almost the entire year, September through like May, pretty much. So just flip through the TV on any sports channel, you probably see him. Um, once again, thank you for hopping on the podcast. I know you're a very busy person in season, and um, just uh, really appreciate someone of your uh, magnitude just hopping on and chatting with us uh, for a little bit about sports and just uh, broadcasting. Really do. Happy to do it. Your timing was perfect, guys, because this is the time of year to get me, and I'm so happy I had a chance to join you. Look, I, I bathe for this podcast. I'm using very expensive hair gel, so I I went all out for you guys. Let's just get oh, that on the tell. table. We can tell, and we really appreciate that, too. All right. All the best, guys. Uh, thank you. Yes, you thank too. you so much. See you.